Good morning, everyone. Welcome, and uh, thank you for being seated. My name is Evan, and the Old Testament reading this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 39, verses 1 through 2 and 5 through 8. At that time, Babylon's king, Merodach Baladan, Baladan's son, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been ill and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased, and he showed them his treasury, the silver and the gold, the spices and fine oil, and everything in his armory, all that was found in his storerooms. There wasn't a thing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah didn't show them. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of heavenly forces. Days are coming when all that is in your house, which your ancestors have stored up until this day, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons, your own descendants, whom you fathered, will be taken to become eunuchs in the king of Babylon's palace. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The Lord's word that you delivered is good, since he thought, that means there will be peace and security in my lifetime. The word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. My name is Jim, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, you should do it for all God's glory. Don't offend either Greeks or Jews or God's church. This is the same thing that I do. I please everyone in everything I do. I don't look out for my own advantage, but I look out for many people so that they may be saved. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Lore. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading. It's found in John 9, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see the gospel of the Lord. Remain standing while we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would in that same way come open our eyes this morning. Open our ears so that we can hear your word. Open our hearts that we can believe and that we can love. In your name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. This is a treat for me. My name is Aaron Keyes. We might not have met yet. Maybe you're new, but I'm definitely new. And I wanted to take a second before we just jump into Ruth chapter 3 to tell you a little bit of um, my own story and how my family ended up here at New Life Church and more specifically even at downtown. So for the last 20 
plus years, um, my wife and I and our four boys, we've been living in Atlanta, Georgia, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and then in, in May of last year, we moved our family to Colorado Springs to join up um, with New Life Church. And this has been um, really wonderful. This is my wife, Megan. She's a, a counselor at North Family Counseling here in town. And then our four boys. So we've got a sophomore at Georgia, a freshman at Auburn. Lots of trash talk going on on the weekends between our family thread, although it's pretty much one way these days. Um, and then a middle schooler uh, who's 13 next uh, in a couple weeks and a 15-year-old high schooler. So our, our life has been in Atlanta for the last 20 years. I was on staff at a church there called Grace Fellowship. I was the worship pastor there. And 18 months ago, we moved so that we could actually join up our ministry called 10K Fam, 10,000 Fathers and Mothers, where we train up and, and we, we raise up worship pastors uh, we raise up spiritual mothers and fathers to creatively shape the future of the church. We, we moved here to join our school and in partnership with New Life Church, which has been a total joy for us. Um, it's also brought some challenges, right? Like when you're in the same place for 20 years, you're the insider. And when you move to a new place after being somewhere for 20 years, you're an outsider. And we're, we're journeying through the book of Ruth, and, and we've called this The Outsider. And I, I'll go ahead and tell you, like, as a white, middle-class guy, I don't really relate to the idea of being an outsider too well um, in the U.S. But for the last 18 months, we've definitely gone through some experience of what it's like to be not quite on the inside. And you can't microwave community. You can't just fast-forward relationships. People have to bring you in, right? And we're going to see this. In the book of Ruth, we'll even see it more today. But the way that I initially became connected to New Life was through Pastor Glenn. So when I was leading worship in Atlanta, I also had the opportunity to travel and to write songs, to record and to tour all over. And I would start running into this little Malaysian guy who was like really smart all over the world. And uh, we, were at, we were together at a conference. This is probably, I would say, I don't know, seven or eight years ago in, in um, the UK where we were both leading and speaking. And I ended up just clinging to Glenn and having so much fun, just firing every question I could at him. I think I was probably in seminary back then. I was throwing him like the hardest questions I could think of, you know. And I just thought, this guy is really remarkable. Um, and I can tell you from living here for the last 18 months and being up close in his life, I believe that even more so. He really is remarkable. And Jason and Sarah too, for that matter. Incredible families who have welcomed us in in the last season. And Megan and I and our boys, we really want to be the kind of people who just continue to welcome more and more people in. We're going to talk about that today. But as you know, we've been journeying through the book of Ruth for the last couple weeks. Um, and Ruth is this you know, let's set the backdrop. Let's remember, this is right after the time of the judges. Brutal, violent. It's like the wild, wild west. Like the time of judges was horrible. And everyone was doing right in their own eyes, right? This is kind of how judges ends. And this is where Ruth begins. There's a famine in the land. Israel, you know, we think, even when we think about Israel, excuse me, when we think about Israel, we often think about this like massive superpower, right, that is like prominent in the earth back then. No, no, no. It's a little blip on a map that's usually being dominated by a superpower, by an empire. And when we think about Israel, don't, don't think of this huge superpower. Think about this tiny little weak country that God is just choosing to bless, to bless the whole world. Um, Israel, because, because Israel was so small and so vulnerable, there were, there were laws in Israel against like 
intermarrying with other nations. It's called endogamy, marrying within the family to kind of keep it all, keep the genealogical thing moving forward. To marry outside was a genealogical dead end. And so when we read about this kind of stuff and then we read about uh, this family going into Moab, it all seems really foreign. Endogamy, like Israel, superpowers, famine, Moab. It's all like, what are we talking about? Moab would be hard to find on a map, you know, today. But it's, it's modern day Jordan. And Moab was a descendant of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so Israel and Moab were two closely related nations. They're, they're family. And as family, they bring all the feuds that normally go along with family. And so these two nations become kind of arch enemies where they're constantly fighting over territory, constantly having uh, a lot of tension between the two. And of course, Ruth is this Moabitess coming into the story of Israel. And we're going to read about that um, today. So it's, it's all very foreign, but at the same time, the book of Ruth is, is beautifully familiar. It's ordinary people. It's God working in the background. It's, it's grief. It's disappointment. It's bitterness. It's loss. It's moving to provide for your family. It's not like Exodus. It's it's not like brazen miracles on every other page. Angels coming in stage left. Heavenly hosts hosts overhead. It's not like that. It's a lot more like your day-to-day than a lot of the other books in the Bible. And I love this because we can really find in this story so much resonance with, well, with our own. So let's get into Ruth chapter 3. Let's read through and then um, I want to point out a few things about a few of the characters And then we're going to look at a few observations. Remember, Naomi and Elimelech, her husband, they were a family of high social standing in the very beginnings of this book of Ruth. Well, Elimelech dies, Naomi moves away, her sons die, and she comes back now, not as this woman of high social standing. Oh, the people are excited Naomi's back. They go, is this Naomi? And she goes, don't call me that anymore. Call me bitterness. So, verse 1. Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well with you? Chapter one is what I just mentioned. Chapter two is what Jason taught last week, how they've, they've been providing for themselves, Naomi and Ruth, by gleaning in the fields of Boaz. Now that's only ever going to be temporary. And so Naomi's looking for something a little bit more permanent. Verse two, now isn't Boaz, whose young women you were with, our relative? Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. You should bathe, put on some perfume, wear nice clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. Ruth replied to her, I'll do everything you are telling me. So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything just as her mother-in-law had ordered. Okay, Naomi and Ruth, they're at the they're at the end of their rope. They are desperate and they need something to change. Like, yes, they've been taken care of, you know, uh, temporarily, but they need permanent security. And so Naomi begins scheming at this threshing floor. And she goes, here's what we can do. See, Naomi knew about this old mosaic law of this kinsman redeemer where, where where there, were, there were laws in Israel to keep people from falling into destitute poverty. So the, the law of gleaning in the corners of the fields was one of those laws. Like built-in social 
security, welfare system set up so that people would never fall into huge abject poverty. Well, another one of those laws had to do with if you lost your husband, if a widow lost her husband, she could actually be protected and provided for by a relative of that husband who could become that redeemer for her. So Naomi knows about this law. I don't know if Ruth knows about this law. She was a Moabitess after all. She didn't grow up with Mosaic law. But Naomi is going to tell her, here's what we can do. Without something changing, they're constantly going to be at the mercy of someone else's benevolence. So Naomi goes, I think I know how we can try this. And I love this. Before we even look at what happens next, notice this is a couple single women, widows, who are taking serious initiative and demonstrating great agency. If anyone could have played the victim card, you know, poor me, woe is me, I guess this is just my fate. That is not these women. I love that these women demonstrate some authority. They take initiative, they've got ideas, and they go for it. I love that in the book of Ruth. Verse 7, so Boaz ate and drank, and he was in a good mood. He went over to lie down by the edge of the grain pile. Ruth quietly approached, uncovered his legs, and lay down. During the middle of the night, the man shuddered and turned over, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. She replied, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant, because you are a redeemer. Okay, let's just pause and unpack a couple of this, a couple nuances going on here in this scene, because Glenn mentioned a couple weeks ago, the Old Testament is not gratuitous, but it doesn't mind being scandalous, like... What is going on here? Well, this is how it worked. You could actually go and be covered by the robe of a redeemer. The word for robe is the same word for wing. It's a Hebrew word, kanaf. It's about being protected from being preyed upon. Think about this, this young widow coming back into town. And she's saying, would you be my protector? Will you be my provider? Will you be my redeemer? I want you to be actually my husband. It's an honorable proposal that's going on here. And it's also, remember, it's a couple generations. So Ruth, this young widow, is a very different age than Boaz, whose kids are out of the house. This isn't two 23-year-olds. Like, this is not what you might read into it. He keeps calling her daughter, see, and so what we see in both, of, both Ruth and Boaz, we're going to see this, and I'll try to draw this out for you. We're going to see character in both of them that would probably eliminate anything salacious from going on here. We're going to see, well, I'll show you in just a second. Boaz, uh, Boaz has land, but he doesn't have love. And so Boaz, verse 10 says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've acted even more faithfully than you did at first. You haven't gone after rich or poor young men. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you everything you're asking. Indeed, my people, all who are at the gate, know that you are a woman of worth. Now, although it's certainly true, I'm a redeemer. There's a redeemer who's a closer relative than I am. So stay the night in the morning. If he'll redeem you, good. Let him redeem. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I myself will redeem you. Lie until the morning, so she laid his feet until morning. She got up, and before one person could recognize another, for he had said, no one should know that the woman came out to the threshing floor. He said, bring the cloak that you have on, hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley. 
and placed it upon her. Then she went into town. I want to point out a few things about these characters that I think will point to a few things in our own character. And let's start with Boaz. Who was this guy again? Is he just like this mega, mega millionaire rich guy? No, no, no. Boaz has some land in a small town in Bethlehem. He's, got, he's a small town farmer, okay? But he's got incredible character. He's an upstanding citizen in that town. Boaz's grandmother was Rahab, the prostitute from Judges. So Boaz is not um, too distant from scandal. But in this climate, even remember the time of the judges, Boaz has such unbelievable character. We see in him hospitality, generosity, integrity. Think of the hospitality of him saying, leave the corners of the fields for the poor. We see his um, integrity in that he will not short circuit the way that the law worked. Boaz wants to be the redeemer. He wants to be the husband to Ruth. But he goes, but there's someone else closer. We have to play this with integrity. Do you see the patient trust that Boaz even submits his own desires to? I think this is a beautiful characteristic, characteristic in Boaz. Boaz recognized that, of course, this is a foreigner. This is a Moabitess. But he refuses to address her as such. He just keeps calling her not foreigner, but daughter. What beautiful character we see in Boaz, in the time of the judges, no less. I love this. And most teaching through the book of Ruth will usually highlight Boaz as this amazing, you know, forerunner of Christ, this picture of a redeemer. And that's good. And there's beautiful stuff there. But the book's not called the book of Boaz. It's called the book of Ruth for a reason. Because you're going to see incredible character in Ruth as well. See, what you're going to find in Ruth, Ruth in chapters 1 and 2 has given up her freedom for Naomi's future. That's some beautiful sacrificial love. The, the Hebrew word for it is hesed. It's a huge word that's hard to even describe in English. But it's, it's the quintessential Israelite virtue, actually. Hesed. It's the steadfast love or the loyal love or the covenantal love or the stubborn love. There's so many different ways we could describe it. And in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Hebrews, in Ruth chapter 1, when, when Naomi prays for Ruth, she says, this is verse 8, may the Lord, when it says deal kindly with you as you have with me, that's May the Lord demonstrate has said to you, as you have to me. So Ruth, who's not even an Israelite, is demonstrating this quintessentially Israelite virtue to Naomi. I was listening to Ellen Davis. She's a uh, professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School. And she said, Hesed is, it's like the glue that binds the entire Israelite community together and binds them to God. And she said the rabbis teach that the most outstanding example of hesed in the Old Testament is Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the outsider. She's demonstrating this to all of the insiders. I love this. So you can see what she's doing. You can also see and notice what she's not doing. Because Anytime you would find Israel going through a wilderness or going through a famine or going through difficulty, most often, more often than not, you find Israel murmuring, complaining, 
whining. Guess what you never see Ruth doing? Oh, she's mourning, but she's never murmuring. It's not just what people do, it's what they don't do sometimes, right? We see in Ruth um, a, a beautiful heart, an incredible character where she won't do it. Don't listen to murmurers. Murmuring never births miracles. And I think it's one of the reasons God so despises murmuring. So through Ruth's hesed, through her steady and stubborn and unrelenting love, she binds herself to Naomi and she begins receiving wisdom from Naomi on what to do. And I love this. She will become the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king of all time, King David. She'll become a mother of the Messiah. So this outsider isn't just family. She's royalty. And her sacrificial love for Naomi begins healing Naomi. See, I want you to see, we've looked at Boaz, we've looked at Ruth. Let's look at Naomi. Because Naomi, as a character and a play, Naomi's character goes through the most transformation. Is the, is the farthest different from start to finish. She's the most dynamic in that way. But through Ruth's presence and unrelenting love, Naomi is changing. See, in chapter 3, right at the beginning, when Naomi goes, here's what we can do. That's the first time Naomi's starting to take initiative, and it's for someone else. Until then, it's all been about God's against me, and everything's falling apart for me, and don't call me lovely, call me bitterness. But now, if something is changing, Naomi is healing. The grief that she carried is becoming generosity. She's thinking of others. The bitterness that she's harbored is becoming assertiveness. She's ready to move on behalf of others. If you've ever gone through grief, you know that it's, it's a wave that won't consume you, ignite you, or overwhelm you, but resisting it will. The more you resist it, the longer you'll be stuck in it. And Naomi, here in chapter 3, chooses to move forward, not to stay. Every week I get to coach worship leaders from all around the world through online like um, Zoom calls. And this week I was talking to some worship leaders and one of the worship leaders there is a, a divorced uh, woman in Charleston, near Charleston, South Carolina. And I was telling them, yeah, I'm teaching on Ruth this week. Uh, I'd love to hear any thoughts that you have, you know. And she brought so much insight to me. She said, as a divorced woman, the idea of a kinsman redeemer slays me. I said, why is that? And she said, because it means that there's a chance for me. There's a chance for future partnership. And she just kind of drew some stuff out that I never would have noticed. She said, you know, there's a lot of widows and divorcees. And I know those aren't the same thing, but there are certain deaths that happen in a divorce that are probably pretty comparable. There's a covenant has died, a relationship has died, a future has died, a dream has died. And if you are in this room or watching online and you have gone through either the, the, the mourning process of death as a widow or even just the divorce process, we want you to know here at New Life Downtown, God has a future for you. There is a future for you. God is not done with you. And we see you and value you Amen. for what you bring to this community. And she actually said, 
the sweetness at the end is even going to be more savored because of all the loss that preceded it. Isn't that good? She said, I, she's praying that God will bring her a husband in time. And she said, I can tell you this, I will never take him for granted. The sweetness of my future will even be more precious because of the devastation that I've walked through in my past. We see that, we're going to see that in, in Ruth chapter 3. And, and so here's the three main things that I want to point out from looking at the story and looking at a few of the characters. Number one, healing is hard. Healing, <laughs> healing is hard. Healing is not as easy as we wish. See, I've got like a scrape on my hand here. I have another one there. That's not hard to heal. But when you get broken, to heal deeply broken places, that is hard. And time doesn't heal wounds. Jesus heals wounds. This is a big deal. We sometimes would just love for Jesus to heal things for us instantly. But the, the reading that we read from the Gospels this morning, it was messy. It's muddy. Jesus is spitting in the mud. Healing is hard. And healing takes time. It's been months now from the time Naomi and Ruth left till they came back. It has been a long time. Time and it has not been easy. Naomi and Ruth, it says they lifted up their voice and wept bitterly. I'm not trying to fast forward how hard this was for these women. I'm trying to just acknowledge, guys, we wish healing happened like this. Often, healing happens over a long period of time through hard work, through loving people. Healing is hard. A few years ago, three, three summers ago, um, we took our boys to Costa Rica for like a summer sabbatical and we wanted to be able to just surf in Costa Rica. So we love to surf, but we're not particularly good at surfing. So we're like, if we, if we could get like a full summer there. And so we rented an Airbnb house um, right at what the description said was a great surf break called Bejuco. Bejuco is about 30 minutes south of Hako. And if you go up to Hako, there's hundreds of surfers out in the water. If you drive a little bit south, you're at Hermosa, hundreds of surfers out in the water. If you get to Bejuco, and literally the whole summer, we never saw one surfer behind our house. And now I know why, because I'll show you a picture of the wave that was behind the house. It was this ripping, barreling wave that just pounded down onto the sand. Um, and so there's two of my boys going out to their certain demise, I'm sure. And so as we were within our first week of getting down there, we were all out surfing for a little while. And it was the last wave of the day. I'd sent the kids in. They were tired. And that last wave of the day, I just, I didn't catch it right. And I actually ended up going over the falls and landing on my head, like right on the ground. And I heard something pop. I blacked out. And when I came to, I thought that my right uh, I thought my forearm had been broken in half, like it was going to be pointing that way. But I looked down and I couldn't believe it was okay. It was all neurological, whatever's going on in my neck. Over the next couple of weeks, it got worse and worse. I couldn't move my neck at all. By the time we got back to the States, I went in for CAT scans and I had actually, I'd fractured my C7, broken it in half. Just absolutely broken my neck. And it, it, I could not believe how hard it was to heal from that injury. Because they put me in this very sexy neck brace. 
My friend said I looked like RoboCop. And I had to wear that brace for months. But that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was the therapy. Because at physical therapy, they would lay me down on this table and they would start cranking on my neck every different direction. I remember telling the therapist at one point, he was, he was twisting on it like this. And I was like, stop, 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 stop. you're going to break it. You're going to break it. And he said, I know what I'm doing. I remember I walked into one appointment and I was like next to get on the table and I literally saw the therapist. He had an old gentleman like laying down. He was working on his knee like this and the old guy was going, dear God, dear God, stop. Make somebody, make him stop. I was like, I gotta go. I can't stay today. (laughs) Guys, if you had just walked into that office, had no context for anything, and you saw this young guy cranking on this old guy, and he's like, stop, stop. You'd be like, stop hurting him. He was healing him. The healing is hard. The stuff that you've gone through, that you felt like God was wounding you, it might have been how God was healing you. Oh, there's plenty of things that will wound you, but God's always going to be on the side of healing you. It's just that healing is hard. It takes time. I mean, even think over the last two years, there have been so many new wounds and hurts that we've all picked up. I mean, if I were to ask you the question, who have you lost in the last two years? Don't just think about who you've buried. Think about Relationships that have become so fractured because of, oh, any number of issues, political issues, social issues, maybe even spiritual issues. We have been very wounded in the last two years. I think it'd be hard to find anyone who hadn't. Those deep wounds are going to require deep healing, and that takes time. God will pull you through but you have to withstand the pull because God is preparing you to be ready for what he's already got ready for you. It's just going to require some healing. See, if I hadn't done that therapy, oh, I could still survive, but my neck would be be able to do about that. But look at this. Look at that. Not bad, huh? I got 90%, baby, and my hips can do the other. So... It's, it's like certain injuries. If you don't get healing, you will be forever impaired. It reminds me of Jesus asking the guy, do you want to be well? He'd been, he'd been sick for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus says, do you want to be well? Isn't it too easy to become like identified by our own woundedness? Like this is just who I am. But Jesus goes, do you want to be well? Because it's going to cost you. Healing is hard. Number two, the menial matters. There's so many just little ordinary things going on in this story. But God is doing extraordinary things through the smallest little ordinary things. Like God is doing incredible stuff in the story. You just can't see that it's God. See, Ruth, she's just collecting leftover grain in the field. But Boaz, chapter 2, verse 5, says, Boaz noticed and goes, who is that? See, Ruth is just staying by Naomi's side, collecting 
grain out in the field and God is arranging things in unbelievable ways. Ruth, she's just out there collecting grain, cleaning in the corner of the field, but God's setting things up so that soon she's going to own the whole field. Not just have legal right to a little corner. The littlest things, even Naomi, she prays this little prayer in Ruth chapter 1. I'll read it to you, verse 8. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with me. We talked about that. Verse 9. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband. So Naomi begins the story. She's weeping and she's bitter and she's broken and she's praying for Ruth to find a new husband. In chapter 3, she's embodying that intercession and working that Ruth would find a husband. See it? This is the littlest thing. It's just a little prayer. It's just a suggestion. But the littlest thing, the menial it really matters. Even with Boaz, when Bo- Boaz spreads his cloak over her, he's fulfilling his own prayer from chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, May the Lord reward your work under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. See, Boaz like prays this prayer over her, and then Boaz embodies that prayer for her. You with me here? It's just the littlest things, but in the littlest things, God is doing the most beautiful work. The Spirit will lead you into responsibility. The menial is meaningful. Almost every prayer in this book is going to be answered by the person who prayed the prayer. I love that about Ruth. The mundane, it's where miracles are being made. And doesn't Jesus' own life show you, like 90% of his time on earth, pretty menial. It's just doing carpentry, just faithfully growing. We, we don't know very much about it at all, except for that one story when he's 12. 90% of it, pretty menial. And then he goes into the desert and is baptized and God goes, I'm so proud of you. See, God is at work when we're just doing the smallest little things. And I tell you that because I think especially for the last couple of years, we've been very disempowered. We all feel powerless. Like, what can we do politically, culturally, nationally, ecologically? What do we do? There's refugees. There's guns everywhere. Like, what do we do? How do we do this? There's nothing I can do. That's what I think a lot of people feel. Maybe you've never even said that, but you've probably felt that disempowerment. I want to empower you. You can do little things with great love. That's Mother Teresa. You can love your neighbors well. And when you do those little things with great love, no, incremental faithfulness creates exponential fruitfulness. The menial matters. We, we just moved into our house 18 months ago and we were like, we need to know our neighbors. We started realizing how transient our street was. Lots of people moving in, lots of people moving out all the time. And so we threw a, a party and we invited our whole street. We said, just come over to the house. And we probably had like 30 or 40 neighbors come into our house. And we had the best time for a couple hours. And when one of our neighbors was leaving, she said, um, we've lived here for seven years and no one's ever had us in their house. And, and here's what she says. She goes, I guess this whole time we were waiting for you guys to get here. I'm not telling you that because of us. I'm telling you that for you, your neighbors have been waiting for you to show up. You're praying for your neighbors? What, you want to invite them to church? How about invite them to dinner? They might not be ready for all this. This might be too much, but dinner? Coffee? People are waiting for you to start embodying 
the intercession that you've been praying for them. You see that over and over and over through Ruth. It is not an option to sit here and pray, oh God, would you do do great things in our city? And be like, well, I'm not doing anything in this city. See, we don't get the choice to sit there and go, the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you and give you peace. And then go, I'm not going to bless you. I'm not going to keep you when you're hurting. I'm not going to shine my face toward you. I'm not going to do any of that. You don't get to abdicate. The invitation is to partner with God in reaching this city. We're here in the city for the sake of the city. We talk about it all the time, to be a community of love. And that through our daily interactions, just our smallest little things, to know that God might be working out unbelievable futures. There was a physicist in 1983. His name is Lauren Whitehead. And he was fascinated by how dominoes can transfer energy if you set them up in a sequence. And so what he found out was a domino can knock over another domino that's one and a half times its size. So two inches, that's a normal domino. That could knock over a three-inch domino. There's enough energy. If there was such thing as like a six-inch domino, it could knock over a nine-inch domino. So it just keeps increasing rapidly. And he was fascinated by how much energy there was and how it picked up if you went consistently. And so he lined them all up. And he said, by the time you get to the 18th domino in a sequence, starting with just two inches, 18 in, there's enough energy being transferred. You could knock over the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Maybe it's not fair because it's kind of like already halfway falling over. (laughs) But if you go to 23 dominoes, you can knock over the Eiffel Tower. If you go to 29 dominoes, you could knock over the Empire State Building. Just by starting with the littlest thing. See, he went on and he said, between the first and the second domino, between that little two-inch domino and the three-inch, there's 0.024 joules being transferred. That's how much energy there is. It's so little, you could do it accidentally with your pinky. But by the time you get 13 in, there's 280 million times more than that. Why am I telling you that? I want you to see that if you will do the little things as if they're big things for God, God can do the big things as if they're nothing for you. But what I see is a lot of people sitting here at the Empire State Building praying and shouting and claiming it down without doing the menial, without doing the little things. And they wonder why they're not seeing results because that's not how it works. God wants to work through you and a whole lot of that is just going to look menial. But menial is beautiful to God. You can do the littlest things. You can invite people over. Maybe you can't change the international diplomacy, but you might be able to change the people's life right beside you. That's in your power. The last thing I want to say that I love in this story, and we're just about done, is while Ruth and Naomi are at the end of their rope... They don't know what's on the line. The third point is that the next generation is actually what's on the line. It's about what God's doing in the future. They could have no idea that God was going to preserve this story and do all this and unfold a brand new future for Moab. They could have no idea. Because you never know what's on the line when you're at the end of your robe. But I'm telling you what's on the line. The future's on the line. The next generation is on the line. 
Ruth opens up the future for these backwater Moabites. Out of this marriage unfolds a story that none of them could have ever imagined. They couldn't see that. Neither can we. I mean, how much of what God wanted to do throughout history was short-circuited by short-sightedness? See, when you think it's just not worth it, who cares? It's just the smallest little thing. It's just a two-inch domino. It's not really changing anything anyway. When you stop here, you don't just forfeit what happened there. You forfeit everything that would have happened in the future that you would have made possible. Isn't most of Israelite history the story of one generation like dropping the ball for the next generation? Like, great, there's a lot of reform that happens under that king, but then what does he do? He blows it for the next generation? That's what we saw with Hezekiah. Like Hezekiah, incredible king, incredible leader. He did all kinds of amazing stuff. And then he gets sick. And Isaiah comes and says, hey, get your house in order. You're going to die. And Hezekiah starts whining. And he whines to God and he goes, I've been faithful and I've served you. And God says, all right, I'll give you 15 more years. And so in that 15 extra years, Hezekiah loses the plot. He starts showing off all this wealth, all of this stuff. He's like, look at all this stuff. And you read, we read it. It was the Old Testament reading. And the king of Babylon comes in and goes, I'll I'll take that and I'll take that and I'll take that. He's making mental, mental notes as he's walking to the storehouse. And Isaiah goes, Here's what's going to happen. You're going to lose all this treasure. You're going to lose your kids. And some of them are going to go become eunuchs. And Hezekiah goes, works for me because it's good in my lifetime. That is failure. How different is that than Jesus? Who, when Jesus left, everything was ignited and took off. See, we talk about stuff like this all the time. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So go slow and be sustainable and blah, 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 blah. Guys, it ain't a sprint or a marathon. It's a relay. And it doesn't matter how fast you run if you drop the baton. It's not about us. It's about the next generation. But so many of us, we run so hard our race and then... Who cares about the next generation? It's good in my time. That was Hezekiah. Nehemiah does the same thing. He blows it. But look what happens in the Old Testament when one generation looks to the next. When Moses finds Joshua or Elijah finds Elisha or Naomi finds a Ruth, the story starts advancing beautifully. The next generation's on the line. What are you doing? You still think it's about you? It's about the future. Let's bring the team up. My hope today is that you would feel empowered and that God would increase our capacity to participate imaginatively in the lives of others. That we would be givers in a world of takers. That we could turn outsiders into family. And even if you're like, I don't know, I feel kind of weak myself. I feel like an outsider or foolish myself. Remember, according to 1 Corinthians 1, that's exactly who God uses. The weak and the powerless and the foolish. Ruth told Naomi in chapter 1, I see you, I value you, I believe in you, I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. Your neighbors are waiting for you to say that to them. God has prepared the smallest things for you to do that will make the biggest difference in the future. If you would start to go, 
I can do this. I can do that. Psalm 68 says, God is the God who sets the lonely into families. That's what Ruth is about. He's bringing lonely people and setting them in family. That's what God could do all around you. If you'll say, I've got some banged up places that need some healing. I'll do the work. And then I've got some very small things that I can do consistently that will make a difference. And I will trust that what God will do in my lifetime will exponentially, exponentially increase in the future because of my faithfulness today.